This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihew from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, everybody, welcome to the Portland Real Estate Podcast. This is episode 16. I am your host, Tucker Merrihew, and I'm here in our virtual studio once again with my co-host, Steve Nassar. Steve-O, what is going on? Hey, Tucker, it is an interesting week with a holiday smack dab in the middle of it. Kind of one of those holidays that sort of shuts things down, but not really. Yeah, <laughs> so Veterans Day. I don't remember the last time Veterans Day was in the middle of the week, to be honest with you. It's usually like a Monday-ish, I think, and places are closed, but it doesn't really feel like a holiday today. Yeah, yeah. There's it, there's actually about half the cars in the parking lot. Like People are a little confused. Like, should I be here or not? <laughs> maybe maybe realtors just take Veterans Day off, huh? <laughs> or, or they don't. Or, or they, they don't. don't. <laughs> if they're like you, they don't. So beyond it being Veterans Day, what's going on with you this week? You got a lot of things going on in the uh, real estate biz, staying busy, I assume? Incredibly busy, incredibly busy. And all of a sudden, a lot of listings are coming out of the woodwork for us, and which is really surprising because we are, gosh, we're two weeks away from Thanksgiving, three weeks, I think, maybe somewhere in there. And you, you just don't expect it. We had a listing meeting here just yesterday, and we're taking five listings live next week which is by all measures a solid week for listings. And Let, let uh, me ask you this, though. When you get those people that, that want to list right now, are you gung-ho about getting them listed? Or do you kind of say, well, we could go this way and list it now, or we could get it ready and list it after the holidays? What's, what's your school of thought on that? Well, I would never advise to list the week of Thanksgiving. I just yeah. see no redeemable value in that. We are listing quite a few the week before. Okay. And then anything that doesn't fit there, we'll skip a week and then go the week after. Gotcha. Yeah. But you are definitely listing stuff between Thanksgiving and Christmas if people are, you know. Yeah. Go. Yeah. You know, my thought process on that is that, yeah, life happens year round, right? So I get that there's more buyers out in the spring. I get that there's more buyers out in the summer, but there's also a lot more sellers. And Life happens year round. People are transferring from jobs year round. People are people get married, people get divorced, people get raises, people have kids. And those circumstances in their world change and they don't get to plan what time of year it happens. And so housing happens year round. I've had some of my best months in December. I mean, it just it just works out. For the last few years, I've some of my best months have been December. Maybe there's something to that. Maybe it's just, you know, been a fluke that's been the case, but so I don't get too hung up in the timing component. Look, this is a, a valid question that somebody asked me. Should they're ready to list, the house is vacant, they're living somewhere else, and they asked me, should we wait until January, February? And we started talking about carrying costs and lost opportunity costs with because they have a lot of equity in the house. But just because you have a, lo a lot of equity in the house and you have a low mortgage payment doesn't mean that you couldn't use the other capital that's just sitting there as dead money elsewhere and make interest on it. So there is lost opportunity cost there as well. And it just doesn't make sense, especially since there really is a lot less houses on the market this time of year. So those people who can, especially with a vacant property, it's really not disrupting somebody's holiday plans to have it on the market, right? And for those people who do need a house this time of year, and they are out there, 
they're serious buyers. They're not the, the tire kickers. They're, they're really out there looking at houses because they need to buy. Unlike probably what happens in the spring and summertime a lot where people are just, you know, kind of out browsing to see what's, what's going on in the, in the real estate market. So I think you just have to, rather than trying to time exactly when the best time is to go on the market, I think you just got to go on the market in the best possible manner when the time happens for you in your particular case. And the same would apply on the buy side. Yeah. You know, it's a thing that I've struggled with over the years because, you know, we tend to not list any of our new projects. Basically, anytime we get past Thanksgiving to Christmas, we've done it in the past. And, you know, I feel like we've gotten burned now. It may not have been really that. It might have been more market time of year. I mean, last year was kind of an anomaly, right? It stayed strong, like universally through the holidays, mainly because, you know, inventory was so low and there was a lot of buyers in the market and it really didn't affect it too much. But, you know, this year, we're going to hold off personally, you know, on listing anything more. We've got one that's set to close the week of Thanksgiving. We're we're buying one actually the week of Thanksgiving too. But then after that, I think we're just going to kind of pump the brakes and wait till after Christmas. But it, it is an interesting question. And, you know, at the end of the day, does it really matter? I don't know. It's tough to say, but I guess it's got to be a personal choice. Yeah, exactly. And I get there's different schools of thought on that as well. So there, you know, it, it, to me, I guess in a nutshell, what I'm saying, it's kind of six one way, half dozen the other, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could go on the market in spring when there's a lot more other homes on the market, but yes, there's more buyers or you can go on the market when it's quieter and there's fewer buyers, but there's fewer houses on the market. And somehow in the end, I think there's arguments both ways. A couple interesting things that I was going to talk about this week, though. On one of those listings, we kind of came across something that, you know, is just a reminder for brokers out there. It was something that I have dealt with a little bit, but I hadn't really dug super far into this. You know, a lot of brokers will talk about doing pre-inspections on a listing, right? Mm -hmm. And it's never been something that I recommended or did, right? Well, I met with some seller clients and they had gone ahead and done a pre-inspection. It's actually designed to be a pre-list pre-inspection. So it was a, it's not your standard inspection, but it's designed for somebody who's about to go on the market. It's a little bit cheaper. I think it was about 200 bucks. I'm looking at the report here. And as we're going through this and they had done their inspection and they had, you know, found a couple things and they addressed them and that part's great. But the question came up, do we have to provide this with our seller's disclosures? Hmm. Now, that's a good question because... What, uh, what's your take on it, Tucker? You know, we don't do them because obviously the houses we put on the market, we've already gone through with a fine tooth comb. And we feel like if we do them, it's your typical, like there's a crack in the sidewalk, right? Or the home inspector starts poking all the fascia boards until they find a one spot that maybe they can put the head of the screwdriver in just slightly and then take a picture. So there's always going to be these little knickknack things that a different inspector will find. Rarely are they the same thing. But since we go through and we renovate or, or build these homes, uh, you know, they have to pass code, they have to be inspected. Uh, so we don't really do it. But I do think that it's a great idea if you've got a home you've lived in for a while and nobody's been in the crawl space for 15 years, you know, it's probably a good idea to get somebody down there beforehand. I don't necessarily see it as an issue providing that to a buyer if a lot of, if anything major has been addressed. But you know, then again, do you really need to provide it? I don't think so. I mean, you know, it's part of the due diligence process of the buyer to do their due diligence, right? So a report that was created for you and not them, 
I just don't see how they, you know, have an absolute right to that. I think you can provide it if you want, but it's part of their due diligence process, in my opinion, to hire their own inspector to check out the house because it would just seem like maybe there's some liability there if you provided them a report and then they took that at face value or whatever, and then there was issues down the line. So I, I personally don't think it should have to be provided. What What do you think, or what is well? The, rule? the seller's disclosures are pretty straightforward. They say, "Have you done an inspection in the last three years? If so, attach them to this report." Oh, okay, so it does say <laughs> to that this exactly. disclosure. All right. So I guess I should read my seller disclosures. Yeah. So bit. I mean, we came up to the conclusion, and I would love anyone to prove me wrong because I'd love to not give this to anybody if I don't have to. And so, if one of our listeners feels otherwise, please reach out to me and let me know. But we've come to the conclusion that yes, this is an inspection report. The seller's disclosure, it's been done within three years of the time we're going on the market. The seller's disclosure is going to ask, have you had an inspection done? And they're going to have to attach this. Now, it's not the end of the world. It's not ugly. But it kind of opened my eyes to, to yet another reason not to encourage your sellers to do an inspection in advance of your going on the market. And here's the other reason why I don't really encourage my sellers to do this beyond having to provide this report. And we all know an inspection report can bring out uglies in a house. I mean, even brand new construction. I'm sure oh, you yeah. have plenty of brand new houses or, well, I mean, or fully rehabbed houses. They have to justify 400 bucks or whatever they charge, right? <laughs> I mean, you can't give somebody a blank 30 pages, you know, for 400 bucks. <laughs> exactly. Can you imagine? Here's a picture of your house and then the rest of it is blank. Yeah. <laughs> so they have to find something. So, you know, in, in addition to the fact that you have to give them this, the reality is anytime you do an inspection, you're going to find stuff. And if you go through and you start fixing arbitrarily items, what's the buyer going to still do? Find other items that they want you to fix. So here's the reality. Okay. This inspection report, let's just say for the sake of this has 50 things wrong with the house. Okay. So if we pick the top 10 things that are the most important, what's the buyer going to do when they do their inspection? Well, I can tell, tell you their home. The next top 10 things. Yeah, right? their home inspector is going to come up with at least 10 more that they probably well, asked for. They're still going to find the 40 that we didn't do. Right. And, they're, and, and the next 10 are going to be what they request. So rather than having them request what we already fixed, we're going to, it's almost like they're double dipping. We yeah. fixed 10. Now they're going to request 10 more. I mean, they're not going to come into the house and say, hey, I think you did 10 things, so we're not going to ask for anything, right? That's just not the nature of how it works. So no. it's an, another reminder to me why it's just, in my opinion, not a great practice to encourage your sellers to do an upfront inspection of their house. A, you got to provide it to the buyer. B, anything you fix in that that, that comes out of it, sure, that is wonderful that it's fixed now, but they're still going to turn around and find something else. Yeah. And, and you're going to have paid for twice the repairs. I yeah, I totally agree. I think that, you know, I'm thinking of it in terms of, okay, they've lived in a house for 15 years. Nobody's been in the crawl space for 14 and a half years. You know, is there a water problem down there? Is there mold issues? Is there something that it's easier to address ahead of time when emotions and layers of people that maybe don't know entirely what they're talking about get involved, that kind of stuff, because that can get ugly and dicey, right? And it can kill sales when it doesn't need to. And so th that's what I'm thinking of. But, you know, but, that's not always the case. No. And here's and, and you're absolutely right, Tucker. So here's a couple ideas. And I'm just brainstorming here have a contractor out, just don't get a written report from them and have them do a, a thorough once over of the house. Yeah. Or, you know, somebody that's qualified to be able to look at things like that. 
<laughs> I yep. just don't give you a report per se. But I, I think at the end of the day, and, and we buy a ton of property. And so, you know, I get it. But, you know, you're the buyer, right? You're supposed to do your due diligence on the property. If I was buying a house, I don't think I would care if the seller had an inspection or not and provided it to me. I mean, I know you're supposed to, but it's my job to do my due diligence and my agent should guide me to do our own, right? And so you're going to do your radon test. You're going to do your sewer scope. You're going to do your home inspection. You know, you're going to do all the things you need to do to feel comfortable about buying the property. And, you know, at the end of the day, does the seller really need to provide it? I don't know. I mean, I guess they do, but it, it does put you in an interesting position because then you don't want to encourage it necessarily because, like you said, they end up fixing stuff and they're going to ask for 10 more things, right? Because that's just the nature of how transactions go. Yeah, they're they're always going to ask for something. And so if you take the easy ones that they would have otherwise asked for and fix them, now they're going to ask for something more. And I'm in agreement with you, by the way. From my experience, when you provide buyers with an inspection that's been done, and this happens a lot of times with sale fails, and that's a different story, right? That's right. not something you planned. And there's a whole different conversation you can have there about whether you should even get the inspection report from the other side if you think there's a chance there's going to be a sale fail. But anyways, anytime you have the inspection, I, I agree most often they still sh do their own and should do their own. But it's definitely just something easy for them to look through and get, you're giving them ammunition. You're giving your, <laughs> the oh, other yeah. side ammunition that otherwise you probably shouldn't be giving them. Yeah, it's a good way to make that list a little longer <laughs> of things yeah. to fix. Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. So what's going on with your business this week? You know, we actually, we just put a house under contract that we're going to buy to renovate. And it's an interesting neighborhood. And I'm interested in your take on it. So, you know, I, I feel like we know Southeast Portland really, really well. We've done projects all over it at this point. And so I'm always surprised, though, when I find these little pockets, right, that are surprisingly better than I thought they would be. And so we're buying a house on Southeast 75th. And when you hear Southeast 75th, you think, oh, you know, we're creeping up on 82nd. It's better now than it used to be all across the board because, you know, Portland's improving, especially in Southeast. But it's north of Powell, south of Division on 75th there. And it's this crazy little neighborhood. It's it's not FOPO. It's it's just north of, of FOPO. And it's this crazy little neighborhood that has a lot of 50s and 60s ranches. There's a lot of churches. There's a college over there. I forget the name of it on uh, Division. And it's surprisingly nice for, you know, 75th, 76th, 77th. And so I guess I'm going to make the call right now that, you know, as values begin to climb in these neighborhoods, you know, in Southeast, new construction starts to make its way in. It has to reach a certain point before it makes sense for builders to build just because of, of permitting costs are so much. You know, you have to hit about that 400,000 mark before it makes sense for one-off lots to be developed with single-family homes in, in Portland. And so this neighborhood between probably 65th and 78th, 79th, in between Powell and Division, I think that's the next domino to fall. It, no new construction is going on in there right now. Fopo does have some, and the prices are anywhere between 399 and 449 probably for new construction homes there. But this neighborhood seems way nicer than Fopo, and there isn't any new construction going on in there. So I we're going to kind of focus on that as a place to start maybe looking for some lots uh, because I think that it's only fitting that that's kind of the next domino to fall as far as a, a good solid neighborhood that is you know prime and ready for new construction to start happening to some of the older housing stock in there that may not be best suited for today's buyers. Yeah, I'm looking at it here on the map. I'm not 
super familiar with it, like from a ground perspective, but I'm looking here just, you know, as a bird's eye view of it on a map, you're just south of Mount Tabor. You're close to Clinton Park. You, you do have a couple, you've got two different colleges there. You've got Warner Pacific and then Portland Community College, Southeast mm-hmm. Campus. It, I can see what you're saying. Yeah, it looks like it's a great little pocket. Yeah, and we've talked a lot about Brooklyn. You know, it's another one of those pockets where, you know, values haven't quite risen to, you know, like Reed and Clinton and Hawthorne and all those areas where the, it's rather expensive to live in now. Brooklyn was one of those that's now just starting to kind of come up and clean up. I think this is another one of those pockets. And so, you know, we've got a project in there. I'm gonna, we'll probably get to know that area a lot better as we continue with that project. But, you know, I was really surprised, I guess, at how nice of a pocket that is. You know, I'd kind of written it off as, eh, it's okay. But I, I, I guess I was rather surprised. So anyway, we've got a project there. I'm pretty excited to get that kicked off. We're going to be kicking it off beginning of January. And we should be done with it hopefully sometime end of February, I'm, I'm thinking. So that's kind of our big, big news. We've got, of course, renovation project that we're selling a little farther down, just south of Woodstock that wraps up next week. And then uh, we've got our Dunthorpe development deal that we're we're hit and go and we're paying the sellers all their money in this next week. So uh, that's going to be a great, great project. We're really excited about that. We actually just got the plans rejiggered. We're going to rebuild our Street of Dreams home from 2013 up there. And we just did some reengineering and a little bit of tweaks to it. So that's going to be a what year long project? No, we should be able to get it built in about seven months. Yeah. Oh, uh, wow. OK. Yeah. So we're in time for summer. Yeah, good time for summer for sure. So we're hoping to we'll probably have a, a party there or something after it's done. It's you know, it'll be a it'll be a really nice house. So yeah. we're we're really excited to get that going. But I actually had the I think I might have mentioned last week, but I had the appraiser call me this week and he just didn't know how in the world we got that thing under contract for what we got under contract for. So that's always a nice feeling. So but good for you. Good for you. So other than that, you know, and this is, uh, I'll kind of segue into our main topic this week. And this was a uh, an event that I went to on Friday. You didn't get a chance to go because you were too busy, obviously. But I wanted to talk about it and kind of bring up some points. And it was the housing forecast that happens once a year. The HBA puts it on. Par Lumber sponsors it. It's down at the convention center. I've been for, I don't know, last three, four, five years to see the presentations. And, you know, it basically is economists and you know, local government type people and their opinions of which direction the housing market is going, what are going to be the the factors either helping it or hurting it moving ahead into the next year. And so this year they had uh, a lineup of three speakers. They always have three guys, but uh, one in particular was really good. And I'll dive into his stuff here in just a few minutes. But they also had Ted Wheeler there because they, Charlie Hale didn't show up, no surprise, knowing how much the building industry is is wel- welcoming him these days. <laughs> but they did get his potential incumbent, Ted Wheeler, was there, and he gave a, a rah-rah speech you know, to try and, I guess, make peace with the building industry or try and put himself off as the guy that the building industry could, could like and not want to hang, you know. So, <laughs> you know, it was definitely political rhetoric and i don't even know what the hell he was talking about to be honest with you but he went with that angle and you know it was what it was but either way he stood in for charlie hale because for obvious reasons he didn't want to be there but then the next guy up was a guy and i'm hoping to get this guy on the on the podcast steve i think that you'll really enjoy talking to him as well it's uh dr gerald mildner and he is the director for the center of real estate at portland state university and so he's got, you know, all the, the degrees and whatnot uh, to be able to have that title for uh, he's basically an economist, but he's also in charge of uh, the real estate school up there at Portland State University. And so he had a really in-depth report that kind of 
refuted a lot of the decisions that our local government has made about our urban growth boundary. And he really helped explain why everybody's calling for affordable housing, right? We talked about this in previous shows. Everybody wants affordable housing in Portland. What that means exactly, I don't know. But and I don't think anybody could give you a totally clear example of what that means. But he went through exactly, you know, what the metro's policy is right now as far as the urban growth boundary, where they're going to not expand it here moving forward, and how that's going to impact not only home prices, but rents moving forward. He also went through a number of things on why Metro feels like they don't need to expand the urban growth boundary. And one of those things was is that they feel like there's enough underutilized land within the urban growth boundary to accommodate all the people coming here. And there was an interesting stat with that. And I'm I'm curious what your opinion is on this, because it's a little contradictory mm-hmm. in terms of how the local government, i.e. our mayor, Charlie Hale, looks at demolition versus the stats on this. And the stat is that 89%, this is coming straight out of the report, 89% of Portland's capacity for new housing comes from redevelopment, which means the demolition of current houses and structures. This creates a significant cost to the developer since those existing structures have value and make it less likely that development will take place. So basically, if you're buying bare land, right, you buy it for land value, but if you're buying something that has a structure on it, not only are you buying something with structure on it, so you have to convince the seller to sell it for land value to make it make sense, but it probably also has some type of other use going on as well that you have to joust with, which means that it's hard to convert a lot of these properties to demolition properties, right? Because there might be tenants in the maybe the crappy old commercial building, or there might be a duplex on there that could be like a 24plex, but there's tenants in there with leases. So it's it's hard to, you can't just snap your fingers and acquire these properties and start these construction projects to help with the housing crisis. You get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Well, And don't you also, so it's kind of a double whammy, like you're getting it for more than bare land because there's more than bare land on it, but then you also have cost to to remove that to get it back to bare land. So there is definitely some some high cost to that, which, you know, you have to factor into the opportunity. Yeah, and that's what he mentions too, is that there's a lot of high costs that go into redevelopment that then factor into the type of housing that's on the other end, right? You want affordable housing, but it's hard to create affordable housing if you're having to redevelop. It, it, and it's hard to create affordable ho- or housing in general when you're buying redevelopment property that may have other uses currently. There's a variety of different owners. There might be tenants on these properties you know, that are currently living in or using them for their, their business. So there's a lot of headwinds, I guess, to being able to utilize all this dirt that Metro says is available for all the people that are supposedly going to be coming to the Portland metro area to satisfy our need for housing in the coming years. So it, it's really an interesting thing. But then on the other side of it, we have our mayor who's, you know, was, I don't know what's going on with it right at this moment, but was trying to implement a teardown tax, right, on developers who tear down plenty or, or housing that they consider livable. So it, it's kind of a contradictory statement. They don't want to expand the UGB. They want us to utilize dirt within the UGB or basically downtown that's underutilized right now. 
But if we tear stuff down that they don't consider uh, or if they consider livable, then they're going to ding you for it. So that makes it even more difficult to buy dirt already at a price that you got to get it down to dirt value. You throw that tax on top. You throw the other structures that are already there. You can see how it makes it really difficult. And this would really strangle our housing supply moving forward. Absolutely. Easy to see that for sure. Yeah. And so another point that he makes in his report, and again, we're going to attach the link to this report. It's called Density at Any Cost Revisited by Gerald Milner. We'll attach it in the show notes. But another thing that he points out is that Metro also feels that a lot of this land that could be redeveloped for a lot of units, and we're talking, you know, I, I think they there's within the report he talks about there's three different types of apartments that can be built, but some of the dirt is high, high density, high rise type apartments, which basically means it's it's concrete and steel construction, which is the most expensive form of construction, which means then those apartments have to rent for the most money of any type of apartments. And the areas where those types of properties uh, for potential development like that are most prevalent are in areas like the Gateway District, Rockwood, 82nd Avenue. So then you have to start thinking to yourself, are those areas that any point in the near future will rent for top dollar? No. That was more of a rhetorical question, but I, I'm interested <laughs> in your take on it. No, I could see those not, not being areas that would rent for top dollar. So then you start seeing a lot of the holes that are in you know, Metro's idea of why they're not going to expand the urban growth boundary. And as they kind of, there's a number of uh, charts within the report that kind of show, basically there's no end in sight for rent increases, you know, in the Portland area. And, uh, you know, as a, a home prices, you know, they may fluctuate a little bit as time goes on, but there's a, a, an absolute that, you know, rent is going to continue to increase. It's not going to become more affordable to live here anytime soon because we have a constraint called the urban growth boundary. And then we have areas within that that could potentially be redeveloped. But as we talked about earlier, there's there's headwinds in actually doing the redevelopment. But on top of that, a lot of the places where many, many of these units could be put in, they're not very desirable places right now. So there's no way that somebody's going to get financing to put in a giant, you know, apartment building that's, you know, high rise style apartment building in Rockwood. It's just not going to happen anytime soon. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things going on here. It's important for people to understand that you can't create housing without providing additional places to do it. And one of those places, and this brings me to my next topic, and this got pushed off until at least 2035 now, the Stafford Triangle. Doesn't look like that's going to get redeveloped. I know a lot of people were kind of hedging their bets that hopefully that would happen. You know, to my knowledge at this point, it, it looks like that got shot down. And so that's been pushed off quite a while. I guess, what do you think about that? And, and how do you think if it does get developed in the future, how does that affect that area of Westland Lake Oswego, which is basically the corridor to downtown? I just showed a uh, a million and a half dollar property to some buyers I'm working with that is right there. It's actually by the Street of Dreams that you built at, Tucker. It was from the property. It's it's actually a horse property and it had views and you could see the winery down there, Oswego Winery, right? Yep. And it bordered on the UGB. It bordered on, there was an actually an orchard that was right there bordering the property. And one of the conversations was with the, you know, my buyers were asking, well, could that ever be developed? And and this is exactly where. So obviously in that situation, you know, that would be good for them because it looks like that's just not going to happen anytime soon. And this is a wonderful area. This was actually this property, even though it felt like West Lynn to me, it was Lake Oswego. Mm -hmm. But if you go a little bit to the, this, then that's why it felt like West Lynn. Because if you go a little bit to the West, you're in West Lynn, which is kind of 
interesting. But to answer your question, there's there's a lot of rolling land out there. Beautiful, beautiful land that is just probably as good as it gets in the metro area for for development purposes. And I think a lot of people would love to a lot of builders and a lot of residents would love to have the opportunity to put some property in there and put some land. To answer your question, I mean, 2035 is not around the corner. I mean, <laughs> no, it's not. You <laughs> you and I are going to be pretty far along in life by that point, and we won't be anything remotely close to the, the young whippersnappers in our, our businesses. We'll be the, the old farts at that time. Yeah, I, I think so. But, uh, you know, you're right. That is a it's a beautiful area out there. It's a little surprising that it, it would get pushed off that far. I mean, it is. It's an absolute that it's going to have to get redeveloped at some point. The way I look at it currently is that, you know, obviously I feel like people want more how if they want more affordable housing, you have to have more housing. And and that's really the bottom line. And if if we're going to keep the UGB constraints the way that they are and expect us to redevelop within it, it's not going to solve the problem. It's just not going to happen. But in terms of the Stafford Triangle, you know, I look at it two ways. Yes, it would be fantastic place to be able to grow both Westland and Lake Oswego and kind of the link between the two of them. Cause right now it, 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 you know, it's kind of this rural divide between Westland and Lake Oswego. And if that fills in probably becomes uh, you know, a, almost like a, a Metro South of Portland, right? It's like, you know, Westland Lake, or Lake Oswego becomes its own like big area as opposed to two separate, uh, which would be cool. But it would feel more like 43, like along Highway 43, you can barely tell where one starts and one stops. Right. Right. You get to right Maryland, now Maryland when you go College. South, o- over there into the Stafford. It, there is a big along Johnson Road and that whole area. I mean, it's it's it, you go into farmlands. Yeah, basically you do, which so it's inevitable that that's going to get redeveloped. The way I look at it, though, now is that, OK, so we have a lot of holdings in Lake Oswego, right? And Lake Oswego is kind of like its own mini landlocked place. They're not creating any more land. And you've got to redevelop what's inside of it because there's very little land that's just not being used, right? Because it's it's very valuable. Everybody, you know, a lot of people want to live there. And so we've got a lot of holdings in Lake Oswego. And since Stafford Triangle isn't going to be developed anytime soon, obviously, as time goes forward, that makes that land that we that we're sitting on now that much more valuable. Uh, we're not going to have any competition to additional housing units, you know, in large amounts anytime soon. Whereas Stafford Triangle, if they started to develop that, now all of a sudden there's going to be a lot more competition in housing new housing units that are put on the market, both Westland and Lake Oswego. And what does that do to prices? Right, that'll probably level off prices, maybe push them down. The more supply you have, you know, that's what it does. It's just a supply and demand. So I think that. It being pushed off until 2035 definitely bodes well for Lake Oswego prices. You know, not that Lake Oswego needs any more help, but, uh, you know, there isn't going to be a massive influx of housing stock in there. That's for sure. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was another interesting thing. Uh, another point that, and this is something that is a little bit counterintuitive if you look at it in terms of how it relates to the housing market, but they expected mortgage rates to peak out at about 4.6% in 2016, 30 year fixed rates, and then go up to 5.4% in 2017. And I'm sure you remember back rates hit around 5%. It was like money was falling from the sky, right? So Mm-hmm. I hear that and it doesn't really worry me too much and it doesn't worry many of the economists either because you know historically money at five and a half percent is still cheap, cheap, cheap for thirty year money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in looking through the slides, one one of them that was interesting to me was this one is a graph showing metropolitan rents in two thousand nine. This was according to the US Census Bureau. And Portland is 
pretty far down there. I mean, I think the most expensive cities were San Francisco and Washington. And ones and you Port- would expect, basically. Yeah. And Portland was probably, I'd guess, you know, maybe 15th, 16th on the list. They're projecting based on supply and demand right now in this report that metropolitan rents in 2035 would have Portland right there at the top, close to the fourth one in, still San Francisco, Washington, San Diego, then Portland, and then Los Angeles, New York, which is pretty crazy. So Yeah, and that that brings up a great point, Stephen. This is something that they were talking, the economist was talking about in, in the presentation on Friday. So that's the result of the UGB issue and the lack of additional units that can be built in reasonable places. But now think about this, and this was the kind of the next step with that idea, is that if you have an option to live in a climate that is rainy eight months of year and it costs more than living in a place like Los Angeles, are we going to get as many people flocking here? Are we going to get as many businesses flocking here? Are we going to get you know the influx of people or does Portland start to become a little bit of a dying city at that point? Because people are like, well, why would I move there? It's just as expensive as a much nicer place, right? In their opinion, weather-wise or climate-wise or whatever, you know, now you're getting into a little bit of a danger zone because it's like, well, why is it that expensive? Why should I move there? You get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've talked about that with San Francisco quite a bit. It's almost like a capitulation. I mean, their success starts to cave in on them. We, you know, we see that with San Francisco. It's so expensive to live there that the things that people wanted to go there to live for don't support that anymore. And, and it, the example with the Bay Area is the tech industry and startups. I mean, inherently, startups need people that are broke for a while to kind of ride the train with them and, you know, buy into the dream that once this thing goes big, we're all going to be rich. But it's really hard to live in San Francisco under that program. So, you know, we, that could happen to Portland as well. The the success and the people moving here could eventually capitulate and come to a point where the roads are too crowded, the, the rents are too high, the home prices, the inventory is too tight, that then people stop moving here and it reverses on itself. Yeah, and, and I think they do make a good point. And, and again, we're going to attach a link to this whole report in the show notes, and I would, you know, strongly advise all of our listeners to go at least give it a read, whether or not you agree or disagree, you know, it's up to you, but it's, I think it's really valuable information, and it really helps paint the picture of what's going on in Portland and, and the direction that we're going as far as, you know, where rents are going and where home prices are going, for the most part, you know, as we move forward, you know, we're, we're constrained heavily in terms of how much more inventory can be created and, you know, by doing that, you know, it makes it puts upward pressure on prices and rents and it's going to continue to do so. So definitely an interesting was an interesting uh, housing meeting on Friday. Yeah, there's one other point here that I thought was interesting as I went through this invest in road construction. And they suggested a couple ways to do that. And I'm sure, you know, there's people that will hate these, <laughs> but something has to be done. And I think you and I can both both agree with that. One of them is metro wide gas tax. The other is congestion pricing. So just creative ideas. I mean, as we've discussed on the show before, right now, here and now, there is no plan anywhere on the docket to do anything about the Columbia River or any of the other metro area freeways. So some plans need to be put in place in conjunction with this. And if that means, you know, some a metro-wide gas tax, I guess you have to deal with it somehow. It's not going to happen for 
for free. Yeah, and there was that that gas tax was an alternative to um, a tax. I don't remember the exact details, but I think it was a tax on tech industry companies, or or it was a it was an industry specific tax that the and the economist was talking about how stupid of an idea that is and I agree because if you if you tax a specific industry now all of a sudden you're going to run that type of industry out of Portland right why in the hell would I start a company here or have a company here where Portland picks on this particular company as opposed to universally everybody the same it just doesn't make any sense so I don't know who came up with that but the the alternative was the metro gas tax to help with those types of things instead of picking on a specific type of industry and taxing them to help pay for things so Definitely a lot in the report, but it's good to go to those housing uh, meetings and and just kind of get other people's opinions of what's going on and then look at the data and and at least try and come to your own conclusions to some extent. But, you know, that way, you know, kind of the direction we're going and and really what we're up against. And it it looks like, you know, as far as I can see, rents aren't going to be getting any uh, less expensive anytime soon. So if you want to pay less in rent, move farther out. (laughs) That's the (laughs) bottom line. Yeah, good stuff. I wish I'd been able to go. Yeah, well, they have it every year, so you can always go next year, right? There you go. <laughs> so that wraps it up for me on the points that uh, I had with that. And unless you've got any uh, parting words of wisdom for our listeners, we might just uh, have to wrap it up. No, that sounds good to me. All right. All right, everybody, this has been Episode 16. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Go to the show notes. Check out the report. I highly advise you read it. I'm going to do what I can to try and get Dr. Gerald Milner on our show here in the upcoming future. I think you guys would probably really like to hear from the horse's mouth what he thinks about the UGB plan and everything else. So this is episode 16. I'm your host, Tucker Maryhugh, my co-host, Steve Nassar. We're signing off till next week. Take care, everyone. Thanks again for listening to our show and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.